Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Safety Matters, the podcast for food safety professionals. I'm Stacey Atchison, publisher of Food Safety Magazine, and I'm here with Barbara Van Renterham, editorial director, and Tiffany Mayberry, digital editor of the magazine, and our returning champion, <laughs> Bob Ferguson with Strategic Consulting, who's here to discuss our latest Food Safety Insights installment. OMG, Bob. It feels like it's been years since we've, you've been on the pod with us. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be the champion. I was waiting for the trophy to show up in the mail, but I haven't <laughs> seen it yet. Everybody gets a ribbon. <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> I've got a few of those. Yeah. So along with Bob, uh, also in today's episode, you're going to hear part one of Barbara's discussion with Steve Mondernock, Executive Director of the Association for Food and Drug Officials, and Ernie Julian, Chief of the Center for Food Protection for the Rhode Island Department of Health. And the topics that they're going to be discussing are what's top of mind for state regulators. Um, so those would be the regulators that you guys are all working with on a regular basis. And one of the key topics that came up, too, was the new era of smarter food safety. So that's on the tip of everybody's tongue these days. But, you know, whenever I hear AFTO, I think of the article that we ran in the magazine many moons ago uh, about their work entitled Boots on the Ground for Food Safety. Uh, it's a terrific primer uh, about AFTO. And so for anybody who's interested in that, we'll put a link in our show notes. You know, it has, as usual, memorable artwork from our art director, Craig Van Wetchel. So, you know, a little nod to Craig. Thanks, Craig. <laughs> he always makes us look good year after year. There's Craig. All right. And of course, we've got a little news to cover, as always. But since we're just back from the GFSI meeting in Seattle, uh, we thought we'd share a few of our highlights and, and takeaways with you. So, Barbara, you want to start us off there? Well, of course, my uh, focus is going to be on my award-winning Shark Tank session. Yeah. And uh, one of my presenters actually won yeah. the overall Shark Tank um, so, uh, there's a shout out to Christine Axelson from Kessler. Um, she had a great presentation. Uh, all of my, uh, speakers had great presentations about what they're proposing the, the food industry should be doing with, with the data out there. Um, but along the lines of data, the theme of the conference was one connected world, one safe food supply, um, there were a lot of presentations about technologies and their applications and things are speeding along in that, in that area. It's hard to keep up. So yeah, I think it was a great, it was a great meeting as always to, to touch base with people you haven't seen in a while. Good networking meeting overall. I think that that theme, one connected world and one food safe supply sort of, uh, sums up not just this meeting, but GFSI for me in general. I always find this meeting to be just different in, uh, it's 30,000 feet, you know, global 30,000 feet and all the way to the weeds when you get to the working groups and stuff like that. It's, it's high level and it's practical at the same time. Um, 
and and that we just come in contact with so much information that that for me we we don't in other places. I I love all the global market stuff uh, stuff. Seeing how we're de, uh, GFSI is, you know, developing public private partnerships to uh, to increase capacity around the world. Very exciting to see people so proud of what they're doing and you know uh, and really making a difference. Um, which I guess also. I don't know. See, there's so much here to cover. All my notes are a little scattered. It's like, what do I say? I my One of my favorite quotes, probably, because I think anybody can relate to it, um, was uh, from the session, Barbara, that you and I attended on the future of shopping and selling new trends in e-commerce, where Liz Duffy, who's the vice president of Global Omnichannel, there's a term for you, Omnichannel Regulatory Compliance at Walmart, said... Fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Uh, keep your mind open to new ways to solve a problem. I think no matter what you're doing for a living, that's just really great advice. Because um, we can sometimes get attached to, well, we'll fix it this way. But falling in love with the problem and being open, uh, it's just, just great advice. Um, there was another guy at the end of the conference, Jason Dorsey from the Center uh, for Generational Kinetics, who talked about training and and all of the how different uh, generations interact with information and how we do training that impacts, you know, uh, when you're thinking about training your new workforce, do you realize that the people that you're dealing with have maybe gone through school without turning in a piece of paper? Right? <laughs> And I think we had almost all the generations covered in our yeah. row, did we yeah. not? <laughs> we did. Yeah. I'm getting over the OK Boomer thing. But uh, he also <laughs> reminded everybody that boomers, you know, did invent that phone that you're so entrenched with, uh, entranced with. So there's that. Um, but the other thing that, that he wound up with, uh, he was a great speaker, great speaker. But he's from uh, Texas, the town near uh, the Bluebell fa uh, facility there. And he talked about how personal that was to his town, that when people were growing up and going through school, a lot of them were leaving high school and going to that plant to work beside, you know, generations of their family. And the impact that that outbreak had uh, on that community. And he... See, I even get a little choked up because it was very emotional. It was very personal. He thanked everybody in the room for what they did and for, for, for the care that they take and for what people are doing. He wasn't the only one that took the time to thank the room and thank food safety professionals for what they're doing. And I, I want to extend that to our audience because I think you guys don't hear that enough. Thank you. You're making huge differences in uh, protecting the food supply. So anyway. There's our little book report on GFSI. <laughs> so with that, I guess it's time to get to some news. But Tiffany, before we dig all the way in, you were going to mention uh, that uh, that article from our e-digest, uh, our most recent e-digest uh, issue this week, too. Yes, we had an article uh, about coronavirus, which is popular topic these days. Speaking of top of um, mind. <laughs> Haven't heard anything about yeah, it. Yeah, that, that got... <laughs> I think it's something to do with beer. <laughs> That's the first I've heard of that. What is that? Fake news, <laughs> fake news. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, 
So yeah, it, it was uh, NRE Digest this past week, and it's um, received a lot of attention on our website. Um, so for anyone who maybe wants to take a look at that and learn all about coronavirus and uh, what that may or may not have to do with food safety, um, maybe we can go ahead and put a link to that in our show yeah, notes. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so you can it take a look. It got a lot of attention. I mean, a big spike. Uh, so I figured it would be worth, uh, if people want to take a look at that, let them know. So what else? What's next? So the FDA has approved Costco Wholesale Corporation as the first participant in FSMA's Voluntary Qualified Importer Program, or VQIP. This is a voluntary fee-based program that provides qualified importers with expedited review and importation of human and animal foods into the United States. FDA says that Costco has successfully demonstrated management of the safety and security of its supply chain, which also allows them to utilize VQIP to import certain food products into the U.S. with greater speed and predictability, avoiding unexpected delays at the point of import entry. For importers who like to participate in the program, the VQIP application portal is open through May 31st, 2020, and we'll have links in our show notes to the application along with resources regarding eligibility requirements. You know, I just want to say for as long as we've been involved with food safety and uh, publishing the magazine, people talk about, you know, ROI. And Larry Keener, uh, our EAB member, editorial advisory board member, has been talking about this forever. And here's where ROI <laughs> this is food safety ROI. You know, we, Costco couldn't do this if they hadn't invested the amount of money that they have over the years to be able to just, boom, get this done. So just a little note, ROI, food safety ROI. And a thumbs up to Craig Wilson yeah, well, um, yeah. for being the behind-the-scenes guy at Costco to get all that done. Yes, but it's dedicated. It's years and years of dedication, you know. And, uh, but it does pay off. So everybody always talks about the complexity of their supply chains. And if you don't have control over that, I have to imagine you can't get any sort of certification like this from FDA. So they certainly have great control over their supply chain. And like you said, that has an ROI. It has a great payoff. Mm -hmm. Next. The FDA recently served a warning letter to fast food franchise Jimmy John's for, quote, engaging in a pattern of receiving and offering for sale adulterated fresh produce. Since 2012, Jimmy John's has been at the center of five foodborne outbreaks, four of them linked to sprouts, one linked to raw cucumbers. Jimmy John's supplier, Sprouts Unlimited Wholesale Foods, was also served a similar warning letter for their part in an ongoing E. coli 0103 outbreak that so far sickened 22 people in five states since November. I wish there was a sound to shaking my head because <laughs> I don't know about you, but Sprouts have been off my uh, consumption list for 12 years now so not a bad idea wow coincidentally yeah the amount of time i've been working here so <laughs> i have to admit to even i do like them but i've been i will say yeah hold the sprouts but i mean come on a pattern do you think since 2012 <laughs> I, I frankly i kind of don't understand how this has been allowed to go on for so long Oh, we were just talking about getting control of your supply chain. It sounds like uh, someone has some work to do. Yeah. Get to work, Jimmy Johns. Yeah. 
<laughs> and FDA, apparently. <laughs> so, all right. And last but not least. After a ban initiated in June 2017, USDA FSIS is again accepting imports of Brazilian raw intact beef products. The ban came after Brazilian meat producers were accused of allowing the sale of contaminated and expired beef. After nearly two years, Brazil's meat inspection system for beef slaughter and processing was audited. USDA found that the country's raw intact beef was again eligible for export into the U.S., beginning with cattle slaughtered after February 21st, the date the suspension was lifted. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association released a statement outlining their concern about the safety of Brazil's beef due to a history of food safety violations. For increased transparency, the group believes that this is why voluntary product of USA labels on beef are necessary. Can't argue with that no, logic. Can't. I I will add about Brazil, and I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound like maybe I'm taking the other side on this, but the not you, sca- Bob. Yeah. <laughs> who, who could possibly imagine that? One? <laughs> the scandal that they had back in 2007 was egregious. It was probably one of the worst things I've ever heard about, except maybe going back to like the muckrakers sort of things a hundred years ago. But it was really bad the things that they've done. But starting in 2017, I've been keeping track of the Brazil market as far as the testing that they've done and the increase in testing that they've done. I had a chance before to work in Brazil a bit, and I know a number of people down there in the microbiology business. The people in beef and in protein in general have probably quadrupled the amount of testing that they're doing. And they are doing a lot more of the type of things that they ought to be doing and bringing things up to what their goal was to U.S. standards. Now, you can track the number of tests they're doing, and they could do 10 times the test and still not be doing the right thing. You can't tell simply by the volume of tests. But if you assume that they're doing the right thing and they're getting the right guidance from who they should be getting, it sounds to me like they're getting their act together and doing exactly the right thing. Um, The other thing that'll be interesting about this is not only allowing it being imported back into the U.S., but what Europe and Asia think about this as well, because they had years ago restricted Brazilian beef exports before. And right now, because of other all the things going on in China, there is a protein deficit in the world and people are looking for anything to fill that. And it'll be interesting to see what happens to Brazil there too. But it sounds at least superficially that they're doing the right thing. Well, we'll look forward to Bob's update in the future as he continues to track Yes. <laughs> now you know why we have Bob on the show <laughs> and part of our team. Yeah. yeah I, I, again, I, I want to be clear about this. I, I've not been down to beef plants in Brazil. I'm not doing any audits. That's not what I'm trying to say. But with the testing that they're doing, it looks like it's trending in the right direction. And so I have to assume it's right. When we started some of the investigations, we had help from the U.S. Um, Department of Commerce who made calls locally in Portuguese for us and things. So we, we think we're getting really good data. But again, it seems like they're doing the right thing. Um, the laboratories are doing different things. The training is different. It sounds like um, like it's getting close to the kind of standards that we'd expect. Well, I, I'm sure it didn't hurt that Alamanza went down there and <laughs> helped to try and figure all that out. I mean, understanding our systems so well and, and helping them get, get it together. That's a great example of the kind of expertise they're getting. And the mm-hmm. the companies are 
are linked to U.S. companies either by ownership or cooperation. Um, I know the FDA has has uh, taken a, a role there. Uh, several of the key laboratories, including some that were involved in the um, scandal, are U.S. and European labs, and they're getting their own uh, situation in Brazil under under control. So, I, it, like I said, it just seems to me from everything I'm hearing that um, it, it's much, much better. It, it had to get better. It couldn't have gotten worse from what it was four or five years ago, but it seems like they're doing the right thing. Good, good. For more background on today's news, visit the podcast page on foodsafetymagazine.com and find show notes for episode 67. Don't forget to also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for Food Safety Magazine. Now it's time for our Food Safety Insights partner, Bob Ferguson, again, president of Strategic Consulting, will guide us through our discussion on his latest Food Safety Insights article that appears in our February-March issue entitled Food Safety Priorities and Plans for 2020, Part De. Is that okay, Barbara? Part De. (laughs) (laughs) No? Not so much. All right. I'll stick to English. (laughs) Part two. Um, This is the second time Stacey changed language during the same podcast. Did I? (laughs) (laughs) But she didn't have any Portuguese. No, I had no Portuguese stories. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah. (laughs) Take it away, Bob. (laughs) Well, the February-March issue is in English. (laughs) But the February-March issue is a follow-up to the previous issue that we had that had a lot of data in it. Now, one of the things that we always want to have in our Food Safety Insights is data and facts. But it's also a lot of fun to get behind the data and find out exactly what people are thinking. So part two, we dig more into the background of what people are thinking, why they said what was their concerns for 2020, and finding out more about the real specific initiatives that they're going to work on uh, this year. And as people saw in the last issue, in, in this Food Safety Insights, they'll also see that a couple of themes jump out. And those themes are employee training. We always hear about employee training being a key issue. And people are trying to find better ways to get the training to stick. It's not just a matter of having employee training. And like one person told me, you can have somebody come in for an eight-hour initial training it doesn't mean they're going to remember it. It doesn't mean they're going to do it. You have to continue to reinforce it. So they're looking for better ways to get that training to stick. Um, oddly enough, leafy greens came up as an issue for people in that business. That's gotten a lot of uh, attention. So that was one thing that was a key thing that they want to fix and work on. Um, environmental monitoring always came up, always comes up. And the other one that was not a big a vote getter in the first issue was food fraud. And that also came up again in some of the discussions. So those are all discussed all throughout the article. Well, I, that the, the section on leafy greens, I found uh, particularly interesting and, and a really nice continuation on a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. Um, so can you go give us a little bit more detail on that, Bob, what you heard? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you some good, and then I'll follow it up with what may be some bad news that we heard from conversations that we have with several people. One is, the good is, there, there's much more awareness of the issue at the farm level. People are telling me that the farmers are paying attention to this. They're looking at irrigation water much more closely. Uh, the other, Somebody else told me that the awareness within the supply chain is also up. And one of the things that they mentioned was that in the packing houses, 
they now have a PCQI, a qualified individual, looking at the food safety at the packing plant, which this person identified as being a weakness in the past. So they're saying that the supply chain from the farm to the packing house uh, to sale is becoming much stronger because of the focus on leafy greens. So I found that to be um, encouraging. Um, the bad news is we also heard more than one person tell us that with the FDA and the CDC coming out to work on their investigations, and we mentioned in Food Safety Magazine that there's going to be a one-year study to look more into irrigation water and the causes of leafy greens. But we've heard that some of the farmers are not allowing the FDA and CDC inspectors to come onto the farm. Uh, they don't want them to come on and do the testing or do whatever they're doing, and they're impeding um, the progress of that um, of that program. I don't know how severe it is, and I don't know if maybe I just ran into someone who happened to see this happening, but I think it would be something to keep an eye on as the year goes on, as how efficiently they can do that test. Well, and it's interesting, Bob, that you bring that up because I think it was just our last podcast that we talked about legislation that's been introduced to allow FDA uh, the ability to go onto like a CAFO, for example, and to do testing in these types of outbreaks. Right. So that certainly is something that, that we think is moving forward, but we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, I, I would surmise that if they're coming for, if the USDA or FDA, depending upon what they're doing and they have jurisdiction, is coming for an inspection that they have the legal authority, where it seems to be a gray area is, do they have the legal authority to come on and conduct project testing? What's, where, is that a gray area? I don't know the answer to that, but that seems to be what, what's happening. Hmm. Interesting. So you mentioned, Bob, that environmental monitoring always comes up. And it doesn't matter whether we have an article in the magazine about this topic or we're going to food safety meetings, that this is always a very popular uh, topic. And there's often, you know, overflow. The, the room can't hold the number of people who want to learn more about it. So... It seemed like many of the people that you highlight in the article are not, um, they, they fall into a little bit of a gray area with regard to FSMA. So does it depend what parts of the regulations apply to them and how they have to keep track of their environmental monitoring programs? How's that working out? The area of environmental monitoring that jumps out in this article, now, environmental monitoring is always problematic. It's difficult. Um, it's not the same for every kind of plant. So there's a lot of different uh, variations of this. But the one that jumps out in the article is not only the environmental monitoring in the plant, but also down to the supply chain. So one of the people that we spoke with was a fruit company and they worked with a lot of small farms. They believed that they had very good control of their environment, environmental monitoring and treatment in the plant. Where they were having more trouble was with all the multitudes of farms. And since many of them are small farms, they're limited in resources to control what happens on the farm. And this is one of those things that I, I like about doing these articles because you get down to, like Stacy said before about AFTO, boots on the ground. Small farms, you have to picture an orchard somewhere with, let's say, apple trees, and they have to control deer and any wildlife that want to get onto the farm. Um, if they don't, you have problems with cross-contamination and pathogens from the animals. Um, if you're, if you have, um, pallets out there, or if they're sitting on the ground, you have problems with that cross contamination as well. That's the issue where they think it's a little bit of a weak link. 
they told me that they believe that the treatment that they have in the plants is sufficient to cover for that but they would rather not have to worry about covering for that so that kind of environmental monitoring more of control of the inputs was the thing that jumped out this time and 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 this is why it seems crazy to me that it's those small farms that are exempt right. from from FISMA. So that's just a pet peeve. Now, the, the, the encouraging part of this to me, though, is that I'm hearing less about the large processors and um, larger organizations getting a handle on this. So now you're starting getting down to the small farms. And, and if what I believe is true is true most of the supply is pretty well covered by FISMA and probably in much better control than it was maybe even a few years ago. And if we're down to compliance of the small farms, sure, there's going to be a lot of them, but they don't account for quite the volume of food that you might have in something else. That's so true. this may be very encouraging. The other thing that I came up that I had not heard before, which I find really fascinating, is the subject of food fraud. Now, we talk about food fraud and substitutions quite a bit. But one retailer that I talked to said that it's not the issue of substitution of the product that they're worried about. They're certainly concerned about that, but that's something that they normally could catch. But they recently ran into some substituted product where the labeling on the cans um, were so well done that they could not tell it from their own product. And the way they were able to prove that it was their product was by doing DNA testing of the contents of the cans that showed that the product, and I'm purposely not saying what the product is, but they said that they could tell that the product's country of origin was not what it should have been, but they couldn't tell from the label because the labels, this one's coming from China, the labels were so well done, they couldn't tell it from their own spec cans. Wow. And that's, that's something wow. to be concerned about. There were some companies exhibiting at GFSI who have solutions, uh, labeling solutions of, you know, barcodes that someone could scan and get the country of origin, the whole story behind the product. So it'll be interesting to see if the counterfeiters can replicate <laughs> those barcodes. It, we'll have to keep tabs on that. But there is some advance uh, advancements being made in, in the area of product labeling that would help deal with that. looks like that may be needed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks as always, Bob. And for anyone who would like to take a look at the article, you can find it on our website at foodsafetymagazine.com. We'll also put a link in our show notes, or maybe it's already on your desk in our February, March issue. You know, if you're a subscriber to the magazine. Hint, 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 hint. <laughs> smash that subscribe button in a different way. <laughs> or, or for our international uh, yes. subscribers, it might be in your email in our digital edition. Can't forget about them. Okay. Now, Barbara, it's time to hear your interview. Yes, Stacy, <laughs> With Steve Mondernock and Ernie Julian. Steve Mondernock is the executive director of the Association for Food and Drug Officials, or AFTO, which unites high-level regulatory officials, industry representatives, trade associations, academia, and consumer organizations. Prior to becoming executive director in 2018, Steve was the bureau chief for Food and Consumer Safety at the Iowa Department of Inspections. He is a past president of AFTO and current co-chair of the association's Laws and Regulations Committee. He has a JD from Drake University Law School. 
We'll always love a lawyer on the team. <laughs> well, we love Steve. Yes. our favorite Yeah, player. there's that. How about there that? is that. <laughs> and Dr. Ernest Julian, who is the chief of the Center for Food Protection for the Rhode Island Department of Health, a position he's held for the last 30 years. Prior to this, he was with the Connecticut Department of Health for 14 years. He is the president of AFTO and has served as their representative to the Council to Improve Foodborne Outbreak Response, or C-I-F-O-R. People, please, we have to stop with the acronyms. And CDC's FISMA Surveillance Workgroup. Ernie is also an adjunct assistant professor of health services, policy, and practice at Brown University. Wow, that was a lot. (laughs) Any more acronyms, please? (laughs) So, Barbara, you you know these guys well. I do. Um, And we had so much to talk about that this turned into a two-parter. Yeah, not surprisingly. So that happens. (laughs) That happens sometimes. Well, they're great and have a lot to say. And you know, have been around long enough to uh, have a lot of great stories. So yes, definitely a must listen on your list. All right. Here's that interview now. Well, first, I'd like to welcome both of you, Steve and Ernie, uh, for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Barbara. Thank you for the invitation. There's so much to talk about in the realm of food regulations at the state level. I don't want to waste any time. So let's get started. As we look back over the past 10 years, it doesn't seem like we've made any significant progress in reducing foodborne illness. Um, Ernie, if we could start with you. Uh, In early January, the Association of Food and Drug Officials, or AFDO, hosted 130 key people from public health, regulatory agencies, the food industry, consumer groups, and academia to talk about how we go forward in reducing foodborne illness during the next 10 years. So what were you hoping to accomplish in this meeting and and what outcomes do you see so far? Well, I think you said it, Barbara. Uh, The major goal for the meeting was salmonellosis hadn't changed in over 20 years. And we keep seeing recurring outbreaks from the same place. Uh, Yuma, Arizona, Salinas Valley with romaine lettuce, uh, papayas from Mexico, a uh, whole bunch of foods keep coming up from the same places at the same time. So the goal here was to bring together the top food safety experts in the country. Uh, we had, uh, I think, 41 people from CDC, the top experts in the various uh, types of foodborne illnesses. We had leaders from FDA. We had uh, USDA. Uh, we had basically um, consumer groups, uh, people from academia, basically get all the stakeholders together and and come up with a plan that it, that's actually going to reduce illness. Uh, And I think one of the big game changers was whole genome sequencing, this form of genetic fingerprinting. Uh, And we're seeing now a big increase in the number of clusters being detected. So that gives us an opportunity to find and eliminate these sources. So it's pulling all the people together to to make that happen. And one of the things, the needs that was determined was uh, Campylobacter is a major cause of illness. And yet most states aren't even testing Campylobacter uh, for whole genome sequencing to see you know what people have in common. Uh, funding is needed for more laboratory work, for more epidemiologists, and for more people in the field uh, to make that happen. Um, also, some things that have been shown to work. Food manager certification has been shown to reduce the potential for outbreaks uh, and also the foodborne illness risk factors, and yet 14 states don't have that in place. So putting that as a priority to work with those states to make that happen. 
uh, sick time for employees or employees can make up their hours if, if they're sick uh, as a way of reducing the potential for norovirus and other illnesses. So those are some of the things that were discussed at the meeting. So it sounds like uh, we need more resources devoted to this and more money uh, for states to put these programs into place. Um, and well, that, that would be helpful. <laughs> but but there's some things that can be done without money, with existing resources, sure. by shifting resources. Now, Steve, um, how does this particular initiative relate back to FDA's new era of smarter food safety? And what does AFTO have planned um, in support of this initiative? Well, uh, AFTO is a key partner with FDA, as uh, oftentimes a lot of the work is actually being done at the state and local level uh, in manufactured foods and produce, and nearly 100% of the retail work is done at the state and local level. So uh, it's our local state and local agencies that are really doing a lot of this work. Um, in the era of smarter food safety, we see lots of uh, overlap uh, with that concept and the key areas that even uh, FDA had outlined in their initial um, kind of a study paper that they presented at the public hearing. Um, one area we've been doing a lot of work on is recalls. Um, when we're, and this is an area that across both our regulatory members and our industry members, we're having a lot of uh, consistency across the two areas of areas of spots where we can do better. Um, one of the common themes is, you know, product just isn't getting removed in a timely fashion. Distribution lists aren't getting distributed amongst the government agencies to ensure there's product removal. Um, one of our large manufacturers uh, tells me that during a class one recall, they'll get 70 requests from different regulatory agencies requesting the distribution list. Well, at that point in time, that's not the best use of the resources for anyone to do, be doing multiple requests for the same information uh, to the same people when they're in the middle of this uh, challenging situation at best. Uh, retail food safety is a huge issue for all of us uh, here at AFTO. So uh, our regulatory partners at the state and local level are the primary, um, primarily responsible for retail food safety. 60% of the outbreaks are attributed to retail, yet some of the focus really hasn't been on outbreak detection and mitigation and doing the best sort of analysis when we go out there and investigate at the retail level. Um, so we're working with uh, FDA and CDC to really enhance uh, how we approach outbreaks at the state and local level, in particular in retail. The last mile of delivery and emerging trends uh, in the retail environment has been very challenging for our state and local partners. Uh, you know, it's, it's not simple to figure out how you're going to suddenly regulate, you know, huge amounts of industry that are now doing this process. And particularly, most of the state and local jurisdictions are adopting a version of the food code, which still has not necessarily caught up with that, uh, with the concept of there being such extensive level of deliveries of all sorts of foods at all times a year. Uh, that is kind of a new concept to us to this extent. It used to be, you know, 10 years ago, if you got food delivered, you're getting Chinese or you're getting a pizza. Well, it's much different today right. and much more and much more risky foods. You're getting your groceries given, you're getting your meal kit delivered. I drive the street in my neighborhood on a 90 degree summer day and I see four or five meal kit delivery boxes sitting out on the, on the front step that have, may have been there for six or eight hours in 90, 95 degree day. Right. What are the risks associated with that? That's a whole new concept for us. Um, the other thing that's really important, I think that we're, we've been thinking a lot about, and I know FDA has been thinking about is how do we incorporate root cause analysis into the everyday work uh, that we're doing in the field at the retail level and the outbreak investigation process. So um, what we have traditionally tr trained inspectors or investigators at all levels is to observe things as to essentially make observations a fact. 
What we haven't necessarily trained them to do well is the next step, which is to observe the fact, but then figure out why do we see this happening? Why are we continually to see temperature problems? Why are we continuing to see cooling or hot holding issues? Uh, working to the next step of solving the problem. So that's really something we have to dramatically change in our training process for, for regulators across the board. And this is uh, this is no secret. Uh, I, I'll tell you when it hit me, I was sitting at a meeting at uh, Pew Charitable Trusts and sitting next to me was Dak Gasayish, who used to be with uh, the state of New York and then with um, uh, and then also with FDA. But we're sitting there and we're like, we've missed the boat. We've just trained our staff entirely wrong for all these years. And, and it was a real realization to both of us that, uh, and you know, it was a couple of us regularly sitting in a corner and we're like, we did this wrong. We really need to modernize how we're tra- t- teaching regulators. Traceability, of course, is an important concept to all of us because we're often the boots on the ground doing that traceability work, getting the invoices, the receipts, the uh, the the shipping documents, the shipping records uh, during those outbreak investigations. Um, you know, we're naturally interested in that process. And you know, as we get a little further down the road, we may be well uh, well positioned to help uh, work toward the best practices and the the key uh, data points uh, that are important in the traceability process. Um, I, I would say that we couldn't have developed a better roadmap uh, if we had tried uh, to some major issues in the food uh, safety regulatory system today. Uh, we give FDA a lot of credit and. Uh, we uh, have been great, uh, been partners in this process, and we will continue to be partners as we move closer uh, to implementing the new era of smarter food safety. So as you were speaking about retail, one thing popped into my mind. You, you were talking about meal delivery, which, of course, is, is trending greatly. But what about third-party sellers online who really don't think of themselves as being in the food industry, but when there's recalled product, they're still selling it online? Um, and certainly that has happened with, with some of the major online retailers. Is there starting to be discussion between federal and, and state how to get ahead of this or, you know, look at it more closely? You know, I, I think that's one of the key points of the era of smarter food safety is a recognition that we have to be able to deal with emerging trends before, before they're, you know, out of the bottle and completely across the country. 20 years ago, or even five years ago, when something started in, in some of the more innovative part of the country, we didn't see it as a nationwide trend for an extended period of time. Now, within six months to a year, it will be everywhere and will be very hard to uh, change or stop how it's being done. Um, so that was one of the key takeaways, I think, uh, it really in that retail section is we've got to figure out a way to get our early questions answered and recognize emerging trends quickly and make some regulatory recommendations and decisions quickly. Uh, we may have to make some recommendations before we can make changes to the food code uh, and provide some guidance uh, very quickly to the state and local governments that are dealing with these real world challenges. And you gave several great examples in that, that discussion. Um, you know, we're all searching uh, Facebook every day and, <laughs> and fi- finding what, oh my God, this is what's being sold today. Right. Um, and some of them are highly risky foods. It's not unusual to find canned goods, uh, you know, complex processes for sale uh, in those sort of uh, areas. Um, you know, we've got some good pilot programs. Uh, you know, uh, the state of Kansas has been doing some work with uh, Facebook Marketplace in particular and had some good cooperation um, in that prog- program to help uh, educate folks that perhaps we're not necessarily uh, producing under the regulatory scheme uh, 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 that's appropriate and, uh, you know, didn't necessarily understand the safety concerns with their product. Uh, that's worked well. We anticipate continuing those type things and really working to find some best practices and, and facilitating whatever we can with FDA to 
uh, to uh, really um, improve this process going forward. Right. Now, speaking of collaboration, uh, AFTO, along with the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, also called NASTA, um, has been working with the F- FDA to develop and maintain strong produce safety programs in states across the country. So the recent outbreaks of foodborne illness related to romaine lettuce, and Ernie, you mentioned romaine earlier, um, it's really renewed FDA's focus on state regulators helping conduct routine inspections of, of farms under FSMA's produce safety rule. But in my mind, given all the issues we've had over the past, say, three years or so with romaine, what do you each think needs to happen next? So in other words, how does the produce industry build upon and implement what, what you talked about, Steve, the science and risk-based uh, preventive controls that are really needed to move the needle forward so we can get ahead of these types of recurrent outbreaks? Um, Ernie, what's Rhode Island doing? Well, on the produce side, that, that's a huge issue, and it's more than three mm-hmm. years. I think FDA is looking back at like 2007, and there have been over 30 outbreaks associated with leafy greens since 2007. So it's 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 been an average of over three outbreaks a year. And one of the things that we're finding is, you know, for generations, farmers used manure to, you know, uh, they talk about soil amendments, you know, it enriched the soil, it basically adds nitrogen. Well, we're finding it also adds pathogens. And, <laughs> you know, it's not surprising right. that, uh, you know, cow manure, basically you've got billions of pounds of cow manure a year and you've got cows right next to the lettuce fields. And the irrigation water gets contaminated because the cows are grazing up up the mountains and the lettuce fields and spinach fields are down in the valleys. Well, that's a problem. And, and we are finding outbreaks over and over again. So one of the things that needs to happen is, you know, we're going to have to get to the point where we're creating a separating distance between the sources of contamination and ready-to-eat food. We're also going to have to get to the point where, you know, there's a treatment of, of contaminated water. And with Yuma, Arizona last year, when they went out there and in a picture, you could see 100,000 head of cattle on this concentrated animal feeding operation. You could see the irrigation canal and you could see the lettuce in the same field, in the same picture. That's obviously a problem. And this year they fixed that, the number of outbreaks, a number of illnesses associated with Yuma went way down, but it didn't happen in Salinas. (laughs) So one of the things that we were doing is in April or in March, now, this year with uh, AFTO, we did a webinar uh, recommending that all states go out and sample romaine lettuce from the same sources that illness happened last year uh, to put pressure on the buyers, to put pressure on the farmers to say, hey, you really need to do something about irrigation water. You really need to do something to move the sources of contamination farther away from ready-to-eat food. And we, at the meeting last week, we talked about doing the same thing this fall. Uh, with Salinas Valley to say, well, okay, if you've got recurring outbreaks from the same farm, you need to find and eliminate that source of contamination. So those are the kind of things we're looking at. And as I mentioned, other things that we're doing in Rhode Island is whole genome sequencing, as I mentioned before, is a game changer. And certain pathogens tend to persist. And we see that with listeria. We see it with salmonella. Uh, one of the things that we do, which is probably different than the vast majority of states, is we will investigate individual cases of listeriosis. And even though it's uh, three to four weeks from the time you eat the product until you get sick, and it can be up to 70 days, we've had success in finding and eliminating the sources of contamination. And uh, we had one case where this elderly male ate 
uh, seafood salad from the same store. And even though it was probably two months prior, we went in there and found listeria in six foods in that store. Wow. If we hadn't done that, that store would have made more people ill. Uh, in 2014, in one month, we had three listeria cases, including two deaths. And we looked at, well, okay, what did these people, where did they shop? Credit card information. We got permission to get shopper card information. We went into seven different places. We picked up food samples. We did swabs. We found listeria in five out of seven places. And now it's which one of these places killed these people? Well, with genetic fingerprinting, we were able to figure out it was a restaurant. And then all of a sudden we said, well, geez, this genetic fingerprint matches a case from a year prior we went back to that person who never said he ate at this restaurant, and he said, I ate there. Wow. And then the other thing that was amazing is this investigation. Uh, in, uh, two weeks later, we picked up another case that didn't match these three people, but it matched a grocery store we had been in and did a swab. So that investigation, this genetic fingerprinting, solved three active cases, a case a year prior, and a person who had eaten the food already but hadn't developed symptoms yet. And I told staff that if we hadn't done that amount of labor, that place would have killed more people. So it's shifting resources to, to find and eliminate these sources of contamination. Well, that's amazing. So, so Barbara, I'd just like to add a couple things. Um, you know, this is only in our lifetime, we've only seen two regulatory programs that are completely new areas of regulation developed. Um, egg safety um, when it comes to uh, all those things not necessarily covered under the FS, FIS, or FSIS inspection program or so essentially liquid eggs. Uh, um, those, uh, a new program there with FDA under the egg safety rule and really produce safety. Produce safety is at its infancy as, as a regulatory program. We're comp- we uh, have t- half of those agencies that are engaged at the state level in produce safety are completely new to regulating in any food product. They've never had this sort of responsibility before. Um, this is a completely new area for all of us, and we're learning as we go. Um, so it's a, in development. We're definitely learning more every day, um, and the programs are, are really trying very hard to do the right thing, but some of that is getting them up to speed in the basic background. Um, the longest programs are in year four uh, and about to go into year five. So this is a, a new challenge for them, and they're definitely learning. Uh, those programs that went into existing food safety programs are definitely much further along in the process uh, and uh, probably a little more robust at this point. Right. But uh, inspections at produce facilities at a routine level started about a year ago, uh, almost a year ago um, in March, so less than 12 months ago uh, at this point. That's a, you know, that, that's a pretty uh, huge lift going forward for both FDA and, and the states that are working in produce safety. And we're, we're going to be learning a lot. The other piece of the puzzle is, you know, with whole genome sequencing, we're just more likely to detect more. Um, one other big challenge with the produce safety rule, and I just want to throw it, throw that out there so our listeners understand, the, the exceptions um, uh, I'll create a a challenge too, right. because in all honesty, we're going to see outbreaks associated with those exceptions that aren't covered under the regulatory scheme in a traditional manner. So we're going to be faced with that, and whole genome sequencing is only going to increase the likelihood that we're going to find them. Um, in addition, you know, I, I'm going to beat Ernie to talking about the culturally independent diagnostic tests that we're seeing in humans. So you know, historically, uh, you know, it was a little harder for physicians to test for specific pathogens. Now they can run a test and have an hour uh, with 
within an hour or two an answer on 17 to 21 different pathogens, depending on what, what mechanism they're using, which specific test they're using. That's pretty amazing. And we're just much more likely to find more with those, those tests and smaller outbreaks. This impacts not only produce, but a lot of the sporadic retail outbreaks that we're seeing of salmonella and listeria in particular, we're more likely to detect now than we ever have been in the past. You know, it's interesting that you, uh, you know, comment on the uh, exemptions to the rule. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, think the big farms, the big companies who have the resources um, usually are further along in their food safety programs and are doing food safety. And it's really the, the small players that are exempt that need the resources and the help. And it seems a little backwards. I mean, you can... you. I can understand logistically why there had to be a cutoff. However, um, it, it seems like the majority of the risk sometimes lies in, in the small uh, producers or, or the cottage food industry, which is, you know, could take us down a whole nother road, I guess, in, in conversation. Well, and one of the things that will happen is this genetic fingerprinting is going to bring us back to the same source. And, and I think we're seeing that now is that, you know, three outbreaks this year with uh, lettuce were traced to the same grower. Right. And we've seen three years in a row the same farm come up with the same genetic fingerprint. So it's going to bring us back to the large growers and the small growers, those people who are recurrently have repeatedly having problems. And I think one of the things is, as Stephen touched upon that, is, you know, for generations, farmers have used manure for fertilizer. And now all of a sudden we're finding it's making lots of people sick. And when they went out and meet with these farmers, they said, we've been doing this for decades. You know, so it, it, there's a change in culture that needs to occur as, as we keep finding these sources of contamination. Right. Now, obviously, um, all of this can only work and be effective if all the stakeholders involved uh, are willing to collaborate. So regulators, industry and consumers. Um, Steve, have you identified a particular project that you think will have the most significant impact on food safety? that AFTO's involved with? Well, there's lots of projects, but I think one of our most <laughs> exciting projects that we have going right now uh, is really related to the retail level. Um, so historically, um, retail level has relied primarily on inspections and during an outbreak scenario, um, trying to get food samples. The challenge, of course, is almost never at the retail level do you have the food still there from when the outbreak occurred. So what we've really been doing in conjunction with CDC and several of our state partners, such as the Tennessee Department of Health, the Maryland Department of Agriculture, the California, sorry, the Maryland Department of Health, the California Department of Agriculture, and the New York State Department of Health, is develop a, a program to teach uh, retail level inspectors of how to do environmental sampling and establish a program in environmental sampling. Um, those sporadic outbreaks, it's really your only tool that's out there. Um, we can tell you that in the 18 months that we've developed the program, we've had over 300 students through that program. And we're going to be doing uh, over the next uh, three months, another uh, uh, almost another um, three, uh, 200 students um, through it. So we'll have 500 total through the program. Um, the other interesting thing is once we started talking about this program, the response we got from industry was really positive, and a lot of our uh, a lot of industry groups were really very interested in this. And I can tell you, two national brands came back and said, "We're establishing an environmental sampling program and doing some routine checks, just because we know this is a potential for us, and we think this is important." Um, just 
I mean, if I can do a little plug here, Barbara, um, sure. the course is going to be offered several times here this uh, fall or this spring. Sorry, I'm already thinking about fall planning right now, but the spring. But uh, for example, we're going to be doing it largely for industry at the Food Safety Summit uh, in May. We're also doing it in conjunction with the uh, Mid-Continental Association of Food and Drug Officials at the end of uh, February, which will be in Northwest Arkansas, uh, Rogers, Arkansas, to be exact, and also uh, in, uh, with the Central, Central Atlantic States Association of Food and Drug Officials, which will be in Pittsburgh. So those are three opportunities any of the listeners would be interested in participating in this day-long hands-on session, uh, and particularly for industry folks who give you a good idea of how um, outbreak investigations are approached at the state uh, and local level um, in retail, and also give some hands-on opportunity to to see how we think when we're out there doing environmental sampling. Um, great opportunity and great partnership between CDC and those state participants. That has been very successful um, thus far. And I expect uh, probably we'll, we've just begun to uh, deliver it uh, across the country and uh, we're seeing more requests than what we can even handle. You know, it, it's great that you bring this up and we'll have some information for our listeners in our show notes uh, for the podcast for anyone who's interested in, in those sessions that you're offering. Um, most of the food safety meetings I go to when, when there's a session on environmental monitoring or listeria control, those are the ones that people are most interested in and, and are really standing room, room only. So um, these are great opportunities uh, that you're making available. Um, Ernie, I'm, I'm curious a, a, to talk to you a little bit on improving outbreak investigations. Now, you're someone who's been working at the state level for over 30 years, and you've already talked about whole genome sequencing as a, as a striking change that is uh, really, I think, ch- changing the game for you. Um, what other things have you seen uh, really significantly change over your time um, in the state regulatory agency? And, and what are your priorities for continuing to move forward and solve outbreaks faster? Well, a couple of things there. I mean, one is immediate response. And I'll use one example. You know, outbreaks, for whatever reason, tend to get reported on a Friday. And there was one Friday a few years back, and it was about 1130 early for an outbreak. Uh, we were told about a nursing home that had 11 people ill with what looked like salmonella. And we sent two people out there immediately while supervisors are checking the file. We're getting together with the epidemiologists at 315, and we, we didn't find any major problems. But one of the things that came out in the afternoon meeting was the epidemiologist identified that there was a bakery that had served Zapolas, this Italian cream-filled pastry, on St. Joseph's Day. So we immediately shipped somebody out to the bakery on this Friday afternoon, and they found that there was um, cream that was used to put uh, into these Zapolas that was 100 degrees. They also found that this guy had made six to 8,000 of these things, and that uh-huh. basically they were in these 30 dozen egg boxes. And we got him on the phone, and he said, oh, the egg boxes were clean. Well, if they're clean, why are there feathers inside of them? So oh. you, you had temperature <laughs> abuse, and you had contamination. So we immediately shut down the place. I told staff, does this guy own any other places? Turns out he did. We immediately sent somebody to the other place, found some similar temperature abuse problems, and within four hours of learning of the bakery, by seven o'clock that night, we had shut down both places and did a press release telling, recalling his product, saying, don't eat it. Um, and over the weekend, we inspected 19 places to pull all that product off of sale. Despite that, there were four deaths, 30 hospitalized, and 80 ill. Wow. Now, if we hadn't acted as fast as we did, 
there would have been a lot more bodies. And, and I think that's the thing we're looking at is you need to respond immediately. Uh, similarly, uh, we know that um, there have been Campylobacter and Salmonella outbreaks associated with chicken livers, pâtés, you know, these hors d'oeuvres in, in, in restaurants. Uh, so we've had three outbreaks just in Rhode Island, and it's over 30 nationally now that USDA and FDA have found associated with these products. So we identified all the places serving that product, and we found you know three outbreaks, and they're causing these scattered cases. Who's going to figure out that the bloody diarrhea they had three days after eating an hors d'oeuvre was, was called by this undercooked uh, chicken liver? So looking at, again, root cause, we had uh, an outbreak with a one-year-old birthday party. Uh, and there was this beautiful gold cake with a picture with a candle on it. Uh, and the kids who ate the product uh, became immediately ill with vomiting. Well, when we looked at it, it said uh, the bakery was using this product that they bought on the Internet that said it was non-toxic. Uh, but basically, it said non-toxic. Well, we traced it to California, and you've got this 55-gallon drum that says environmental hazard, and it was pure copper. Oh. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> our staff did a, a presentation at this at several national meetings and somebody in another state, they found that there was a kid that had a high level of lead poisoning and it was the same kind of thing. These bright colors being used in these frostings were high in toxic uh, heavy metals. Oh, uh, wow. And uh, in this one case, they were saying that the frosting was 25% lead, which led to this kid with oh. high lead poisoning. So it, it's again, finding and eliminating the sources of contamination. Uh, there was a national outbreak going on with STEC. Uh, we had one case in Rhode Island. And at the time, they didn't know if it was beef, if it was produce, uh, or flour was coming up. Our person worked in a bakery and ate uh, raw cookie dough. I said, go out there and sample it. And our one sample uh, in this outbreak going, that had been going on for five months found STEC in the flour that matched the outbreak, which led to millions of pounds of flour being recalled. So, so it's looking at things differently. It's shifting from routine inspections that may or may not find a problem to what's making people sick, getting there right away, and following up to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I think that's the change in culture that needs to occur on the regulatory side. Another thing that I might note, Ernie, is also um, when you have a suspicion and maybe not enough evidence to to link an outbreak talking to the industry early. Um, I really found that on those Friday afternoons when we had initial epi evidence that didn't necessarily but was you know beginning to make us wonder about something and when i talked to the appropriate firms i was shocked at how quickly they were able to take uh, action even though we couldn't necessarily recommend or say that this is the cause uh, we you know they would take action and remove product over the weekend while we're figuring out what was happening which was a, a great initial step and often uh, limited the spread of illness uh, you know I, I can tell you time after time when we did those early talks before we necessarily had all the evidence uh, that would lead us to uh, that conclusion but you know when it was looking like this is the direction we seem to be headed uh, those conversations industry normally acted appropriately and took an initial response and, uh, and uh, was much more effective than what, uh, what we could have done had we waited uh, till we were sh you know, largely sure and could really confirm that that's uh, the cause of the outbreak. So I would say that's another thing that we've definitely learned uh, is to uh, go ahead and talk to industry early when you start having those suspicions. Because you know, most of the time, the question on that phone call is, what would you do in my position? And you know, sometimes it's very inexpensive to, to remove product for the weekend while you're trying to figure out what's going on or even a day 
day or night while you're trying to figure out uh, for sure is this linked or is this not um, you know when you're doing those initial epi interviews the information comes kind of in chunks uh, and uh, not necessarily ever ever as quickly as you would like so that would be one other thing uh, one other thing that I would just like to note that Ernie has done a great job with this year is really um, working on pre prevention in a timely manner um, so we've been working with CDC on a couple projects that I, I think would be worth mentioning um, in addition to the environmental sampling. We did uh, two webinars earlier this year that are public available on the AFTA website. Uh, one on hepatitis A, uh, largely in food service and uh, talking about uh, hepatitis A and transmission and prevention of it. And also right uh, as we're going into the, the winter, uh, the fall winter holiday season uh, when a neurovirus uh, with the key national experts and really talking about prevention and outbreak investigation related to, to these areas. So um, once again, just in time for when they're really kind of coming uh, and also available for the long term. Uh, they were both recorded wow. and a really good attendance. Um, surprisingly, I can tell you that both uh, I know the hepatitis A has hit over a thousand viewers at this point, which is uh, pretty exciting for us. Um, neuroviruses uh, was over 600. So that's great. Um, Great viewership of both. We're very excited by that. Um, one other thing that we are doing is as we do these learnings, we're also socializing them on a national level through various formats, whether it be the Food Safety Summit, the National Outbreak Investigation uh, Conference that happens every other year, um, Inform, and other places to try to help uh, make this a best practice across the community and, uh, and naturally working with our CDC and FDA partners in doing that. Um, so another two great examples uh, this year that we've done. Yeah, and the industry is a fantastic partner. And last week at the at the Healthy People 2030 conference, I mean, we, we had the egg industry, we had the chicken industry, we had turkey, we had beef, uh, we had grocery manufacturers, we had the Food Marketing Institute representing stores and the restaurant industry and, and major chains and buyers. So the, working with them is critical. And for one example, one of the major chains uh, told me on a conference call with their vice president that they can make 3.8 million calls per hour to notify their customers that they have a recalled product. That's great public health. And, and we should also note the produce industry was also in the room uh, through a couple of different representatives and oh. their associations. So don't yeah. want to forget them. Absolutely. <laughs> no, definitely <Yeah>. not. <laughs> Thank you yeah. for reminding me. I'm always surprised. You know, I talked to Craig Wilson with Costco, and, and they're very good about notifying uh, shoppers when something's been recalled. Now, I have cards for every single grocery store around. I have never gotten a call from any of them. And I think how easy that could be and, and what great public health service that would be if, if more uh, retailers would, would pro put programs like that into place. So that's great to hear that more of that is going on. Um, now, Steve, you, you've mentioned the Food Safety Summit a couple times. Uh, we have noticed a variety of food regulatory events have included sessions dealing with partners with a common purpose. And I had attended one of those sessions at last year's summit. Uh, could you tell our listeners about uh, this group and what the goals are? 
Sure. Uh, this was really, uh, I'm going to give uh, Mick Miklos with the National Restaurant Association currently the credit for coming up with this concept. His concept was we need to create a safe space where folks can talk about their issues and their concerns and their challenges, and hopefully um, eventually come to some ideas of consensus on what solutions might be. So in our first uh, round, which has been the last uh, year or so, what we really focused on was helping industry and regulatory communities understand, hey, we have a lot in common and we really have the same purpose, which is ensuring we have uh, safe food for the consumers across this country uh, and the world, really. Um, so that's really what we focused on in the first uh, year or so. Next, we're really going to be moving to the next step, which is uh, how do we actualize it and, and find some of those best practices that we, we can take forward out into the industry and regulatory communities. Um, we've been through the themes that we saw at the first two sessions or the first series of sessions, which occurred at both the Food Safety Summit, the AF, an AFTO conference and then the National Environmental Health Association conference where the, where the first three sessions were held over that first year. Um, now we're going to have sessions at all three of those conferences along with one of the regional AFTO affiliates, the Central Atlantic States meeting um, coming up in May. And so May, um, June and July for those next three sessions, really working to the next step, which is building out some of those best practices, finding some of those key areas. We're using those themes that came out of the first uh, series of sessions to help inform us on what we want to focus on over those next uh, series of sessions. And, you know, I, I suspect that perhaps uh, food safety culture might be an item that we really talk about. How do you uh, evaluate and ensure that you really have a food safety culture in your environment? And, and uh, interestingly enough, I would say food safety culture is not just a, an issue for uh, industry or a challenge for industry. It's a challenge for regulators, too. Um, we need to have our, our regulatory staff understand that they are really public health professionals that are out there to prevent and stop and mitigate the potential for illness uh, and really have them uh, help them to understand their role in the whole system. And sometimes uh, that's a hard thing. Uh, I'm going to use, uh, I'm going to Mike quote Ernie a little bit here. Um, sometimes we forget how important the follow-up is after we find a violation. Uh, we have to make sure that we've indeed uh, corrected, had long-term and, uh, and, and immediate correction of those things that could cause illness. Um, letting it sit out there is just not acceptable. We have to follow up and make sure that it's been done. That's just part of a good food safety culture. Other thing that I would say is a sense of urgency. When we're hitting one of those uh, foodborne outbreaks and we know what the product is, making sure the product's off the market should have a sense of urgency about it. Getting the distribution list, verifying the product's been removed, making sure the notifications have happened, and doing that all quickly uh, is another area of food safety culture that's very important amongst the regulatory community. So a food safety culture is a good one, for, I, I think, that will be coming up at those sessions uh, this uh, across the spring and summer. But um, I'm sure there will be some other topics that also come up in, in, during those uh, discussions, but uh, one that's challenging, I think, across both regulatory and industry. Um, but one good example. Um, you know, and we anticipate this will be a continuing program. No one really owns it. It's, a, it's one of those where forward-thinking people across uh, both sectors came together and said, hey, let's do this together and do this. And nothing you say is wrong in that environment. It's really one where we're really trying to discuss and have those uh, frank conversations. And sometimes, uh, you know, we're going to find things that don't work well in either place. Um, uh, but we can definitely use those as an opportunity to improve. Right. And just to give you a little bit of a plug, Steve, you did write an article for us um, that's going to be published very shortly on uh, Partners with a Common Purpose. So our listeners can stay tuned for that. Um, so there, we've already touched a little bit about 
um, what I consider a looming issue that I'm keeping my eye on, um, and that is uh, meal delivery. Um, so, you know, Ernie, if we start with you, um, we know that a lot of restaurants are turning toward third-party delivery services, uh, Uber Eats, DoorDash, uh, et cetera, um, McDonald's for one uh, springs to mind. How, as a state regulator, do you decide who's ultimately responsible for getting the food, you know, for maintaining, whether it's cold chain or, um, you know, hot food, keeping hot food hot and cold food cold and not tampering with it during delivery? I've heard a lot of uh, kind of crazy stories over the past year um, as as this trend has increased. So from a state perspective, how do you get in front of that? Um, it, it sounds like this is an area that is kind of outpacing the regulations surrounding it. So just curious about um, your thoughts on this. Well, it's one of those things that's very hard to regulate. And from a public health perspective, I mean, obviously, if somebody gets sick, uh, they're going to sue both. I mean, that, that's just natural. They sue everybody and then let the court sort out who did what. Uh, from a public health perspective, it's going to depend on time and temperature. Now, if somebody orders the food and, you know, it's immediately delivered and immediately consumed, you know, and you've got 20 minutes to a half an hour between leaving the restaurant and getting to the person's house and being consumed, then the risk is, you know, pretty low, uh, pretty much non-existent if it was handled properly ahead of time. If you've got the situation that Steve was talking about, where it's left on somebody's doorstep for hours and it's 95 degrees outside, well, that's a whole different situation. And now your risk is much higher. And, and that's really of concern. So I think on the consumer part, um, hopefully most of the people are ordering the food, you know, at mealtime. Uh, for immediate consumption, which would keep the list the risk relatively low, but you've you know one of the colleges had robots, and this one company was using locked robots, and it delivers pizzas or whatever to your room, and you use your phone to unlock it, which at least you know there was a prevention of tampering, um, but you know temperature control, cleaning the units, I mean all those things come into play as as potential areas of concern. So I think the big thing is, is how long is that delivery? Is it, um, you know, going directly from the restaurant to that customer or is it, you know, they're stopping at multiple houses and how long is that delivery route? So I think one other thing to note, Barbara, is we, we do actively engage with the Partnership for Food Safety Education and have for, we're a founding member of the partnership uh, and, and working with them on some of those key consumer messages. But our messages are changing over time. Uh, it used to be we were really focused on those things that were happening in the home when you're cooking uh, you know, uh, and um, handling in your own home. Well, now the message really is changing is how do you verify what you got really uh, is uh, sound for use. Uh, it's a different message than what we've perhaps had in the past. Um, so it's one of those areas that we're definitely looking at and working with the partnership to help educate. And frankly, uh, as a regulator, it's a, it's a new challenge. A handful of local jurisdictions have really worked on this area um, that were very progressive, uh, forward-thinking jurisdictions have uh, started dealing with this, literally to the point of licensing individual Uber vehicles um, and doing some training with Uber drivers, etc. Uh, and Uber's just one example. There's many others. Others, but um, 
training them on the importance of delivering quickly, you know, ensuring the package remains intact and those sorts of things. But uh, I think we've all had that that bad experience where it seems like uh, our food sits in someone's car for uh, extended amounts of time. And on the bad days, it, that can be a really uh, a challenging situation. But the delivery kits definitely present a new set of challenges for us in consumer education and new messages that we've never really had to use before. Well, and going back, and I've been in Rhode Island for 30 years now, but prior to that, I was with the Connecticut Department of Health for 14 years. And, and it brings us, brings me back to Meals on Wheels. And one of the things that we had in Connecticut is we had, you know, multiple outbreaks associated with Meals on Wheels where they're feeding the elderly. And part of it was they had delivery routes that were two to two and a half hours long. And they were leaving it on doorsteps. Well, okay, in, in the summertime, that's a huge problem. You get a long delivery route and you're leaving it on doorsteps. And one of the things we had them do was shorten the delivery routes, um, you know, monitor temperatures. And if the person wasn't home, you don't deliver something that requires refrigeration, a temperature control. And, and that kind of cut down the, the problem. So it, it's, again, that time and temperature. Many thanks to Steve Mondernock and Ernie Julian for joining us on the podcast today. So be sure and tune in for our next episode on March 24th to hear part two. Do I continue it? Part two of the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys. I'm sorry. I know it's corny and terrible, but it has to be done. And Can I have a rating system for your French? <laughs> yeah, well, then? we know I fail, so let's not. <laughs> no surprises there. So... And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to send us your questions and suggestions to podcast at foodsafetymagazine.com or post a note on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. As always, you'll find links for all the references we've mentioned in the episode in our show notes. You can access those in your podcast player or on our website at foodsafetymagazine.com slash podcast and then find episode 67. Make sure that new and bonus episodes magically appear in your feed by clicking that subscribe button. That's it for us today. Our next regular episode will post on March 24th. We'll talk to you then.